Blog Talk Radio. Stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know what you have done Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the NASCA Stop Child Abuse Now Block Talk Radio Show. NASCA is the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. And so it's N-A-A-S-C-A. We are on Monday through Friday evenings from, well, I'm not going to say the time because people are from all over the the world. They call in and listen. So, um, but we're, we're so glad to have you this evening. We have, uh, kind of an open mic forum and, um, but we do have a special co-host this evening. So I will introduce him in just a minute, but, um, and, so we're also on scan number 3137. So this is the, the number that you can look back on and find this show. Um, if you would like to call in and be a part of the panel, we'd love to have you. That number is 646-595-2118. And we have a single purpose here at NASCA, and that is to address issues that are related to childhood abuse and trauma including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas and neglect, and we do so with only two goals. One, by educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, also known as CSA, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic, everyone, and two, by offering hope and healing through numerous paths providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. And again, we are on scan number 3137 this evening. And again, we'd love to have you call in and be a part of the panel. Um, And that number is 646-595-2118. And my beautiful co-host, Penelope, or Victoria, it looks like I've got two of them this evening, um, would, will meet you on the back line and bring you in if you have a question. So, so this evening, um, it's, we're doing a Q&A call-in discussion with a survivor professional, so using an open mic form. So we'd love to have you call in and participate. We'll feature a survivor professional co-host who who's going to field some questions brought to you 
um, by the listener, brought by you, the listener. Tonight, our special co-host is Dean Tong from Port Ritchie, Florida. He is a trial consultant, author, nationally certified child forensic interviewer, and subject matter expert. I'm also a forensic trial consultant, he says, and an expert in the area of cognitive child development psychology and structured interviews of children allegedly molested, child sex abuse therapy, parental alienation, sexual deviation, sexual interest in defiancy, I'm sorry, I didn't know that word, um, and child abuse investigations in juvenile, criminal, family, and administrative courts across America. He has a website, which is www.abuseexcuse.com. And on these episodes, like we said, we welcome various co-hosts and survivor professionals who will help assist us in fielding questions and lead a variety of topics suggested by our call-in participants. Their trauma-informed perspectives as supervisors, survivor professionals, will help them guide discussions on the issue of child abuse, trauma, and healthy human sexuality that springs from questions and topics brought to you by our listeners. So everyone is invited to engage on tonight's show. You can also visit NASCA.org on the web, N-A-A-S-C-A.org, and um, listen to us there. It always looks up the scan number as well. So my name is Kim Lakin. Welcome. I sometimes forget to introduce myself. So um, welcome, everybody, to the show this evening. I'm going to go ahead and bring Dean on. So, Dean, you are on the air. Thank you for being here Kim, this thanks evening. For having, thank you for having me this evening, Kim. Yeah, we've got a few people that have called in on the panel, so that's exciting. Um, one of our... Yeah, so... First of all, I want to acknowledge I want to acknowledge that child sexual assault uh, is a pervasive problem. Um, certainly, it's an issue that has to be investigated competently by Child Protective Services and the authorities. The child advocacy centers across America and Canada who interview children allegedly abused at, um, conduct these forensic interviews. The uh, rape assault centers that can that conduct the anal genital rape examinations. Usually it's a multidisciplinary team approach and methodology, which is great. Everybody working in concert to help the child victim. But I specialize pretty much on the flip side. I'm kind of that a horse of a different color. And I, I see a lot of unfounded, unsubstantiated cases, occasionally false cases, perhaps in a high-conflict divorce or custody battle or a parenting time dispute where a parent may be wielding a child as a pawn weapon or tool, uh, in a custody bell, raising this allegation based on timing of litigation to uh, to get custody, to get child support, to get social status as the most fit parent, and tip the scales. And, of course, I see this dynamic in other situations that don't involve high-conflict uh, divorces or custody battles as well. I get a lot of criminal cases, uh, and I'm hired uh, uh, not just by individuals who have been arrested and charged uh, who pay big-time fees to attorneys, but those who have no resources are able to obtain my services, even if they're indigent or in law, it's called informa pauperis. Uh, they can go through the Office of Public Defense Services, 
so the accused has a right to a defense that includes not just lawyers but experts. So I'm allowed to give opinions, uh, multiple opinions in the areas of cognitive developmental child psychology, evidence-based best practices of the child forensic interviews, the overall handling of the investigation by Child Protective Services and the authorities, whether the case involves uh, what we call parental alienation uh, and or said sexual allegations and divorce, which is a theory first published in 1987 by psychologist Blush and Ross out of Michigan. <clears throat> and basically, I'm allowed to give these opinions in all courts, um, dependency courts where parents, uh, a parent could have their rights terminated by a juvenile court judge, a criminal court where you're facing felony conviction, prison, lifelong sex offender registration, family court, obviously, where parenting time and custody come to play, and administrative courts where they can, uh, CPS can place your name internally on their child abuse registry on a blacklist of suspected abusers. Uh, most of these courts, the burden of proof is the preponderance of evidence, more evidence than not, 51%. So it's a very slippery slope. It's a very gray area. It's an area where a judge uh, will rule in the child's best interest and oftentimes can make a mistake on the side of caution, on the side of the child against the accused. So <clears throat> while I agree that there are many victims out there, there are also victims on the unfounded or false side of this coin, and there's little help for them. There's plenty of help uh, on, on the actual side of bona fide abuse. Uh, and, and, of course, I get this question asked to me all the time. Uh, if I consult and testify on the state side, on the prosecution side, and I don't. Uh, and I don't really because I'm so busy uh, helping those wounded innocents who find themselves, uh, as I say in my book, Elusive Innocence, uh, in the three-ring circus, juvenile, family, and criminal court, all at the same time perhaps with a well-meaning, well-intentioned attorney, uh, but who may be misguided, who did not, who did not receive proper education uh, in law school on how to handle a case like this. These are specialized cases. They're not taught in law school. And oftentimes I see lawyers needing my help, uh, not just in strategy and theory, but in formatting questions on direct and cross and redirect and recross of all fact and expert witnesses in the case. So it's a highly complex area of, of law and litigation and science. And uh, the deck is very stacked against the accused. Uh, and, and, and while I appreciate what NASCA does, um, certainly you guys do a great job. <clears throat> there are other organizations out there like RAIN, R-A-I-N-N.org in America, um, MOSAC, M-O-S-A-C, Mothers of Sexually Abused Children, and, and uh, D2L, Doctors to Light. <clears throat> so there's a lot of help out there uh, on the side of actual abuse, uh, but there's little help on the side for those, you know, on the other side, uh, those who are actually defending uh, allegations where the accused remains vigil, vigilant to that uh, he or she did not uh, perpetrate abuse <clears throat> and uh, is up against a uh, mountain of money and players against them in a court of law. Now, like I said, I do uh, get cases uh, where moms lose custody, where moms are falsely accused of coaching their kids, 
to falsely accuse the dads of incest or other crimes. Um, and certainly uh, those are more the exception than the rule uh, in my uh, caseload because there's so little help uh, for men and fathers who've been wrongly accused of child sexual assault and, and child abuse uh, and help out there. So um, it's, it's a controversial area, obviously. Um, it, you know, it starts with the uh, suggestibility the level of suggestibility uh, with the child and memory, uh, the the memories of the child, and whether the memories are spontaneous and reliable and trustworthy, or whether they've been contaminated, adulterated, and tainted. So uh, lawyers bring me in all the time in cases to critique the child forensic interviews captured on DVD at the Child Advocacy Centers. And I'm going over the interviews to glean whether the interviewers use leading, suggestive, direct, repeated, forced choice, and questions that entail what we call negative stereotype induction, where they may have vilified the accused uh, in the questions. So obviously, uh, it's very important that you don't put words or thoughts or ideas in the child's mind and contaminate the child's information. Only 5% of these cases contain medical traumatic findings. 5%, so 1 out of 20. So 95% of these cases are child victim hearsay. He said, she said what a child said. This is rule 803. This is the exception to the hearsay rule. It comes into evidence on the record. It's what places the accused in handcuffs and starts a criminal case. It is what causes Child Protective Services to take your kids from you. Um, and place them in uh, foster care or with relatives uh, pending court hearings, and you're guilty until proven innocent and have to prove a negative to prove your innocence. My website, uh, abuseexcuse.com, has been on the Internet now for over 25 years, back to 1997. And uh, trust me, when I get a case, uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, you just you just have no idea how much work it is, not not just in my lap to do my job, but to uh, in part babysit the attorney um, and to help the attorney guide the case along uh, through hearings, contested hearings. So, for example, um, in America, most states are governed by what we call Daubert, D-A-U-B-E-R-T, is the case law that governs the admissibility of science and expert testimony here in America in most states. In your country of Canada, um, it's Mohan, M-O-H-A-N, is the governing case law, similar to Daubert. Basically, Daubert says that the science or theory the expert is testifying to must be peer-reviewed, must be published, must have a known error rate, must be scientifically reliable, and must be accepted by the general psychological scientific community. So those are the criteria, those are the factors that a judge goes by to glean whether it is junk science or whether it is genuine science that an expert is testifying to. So I testified a lot of those hearings, um, basically science and controversy, contested hearings. And uh, I have to sometimes um, do the legal research also, not just the scientific research, but the legal research for the attorneys and the paralegals as well. 
<clears throat> because uh, you know, I've been doing this now for decades, and obviously it's like anything else in life, I guess. When you do something long enough, you get pretty good at it. <clears throat> so uh, <clears throat> for me, uh, as a specialist, uh, <clears throat> I, I get a lot of consults. I have consulted on about 25,000 cases since the mid-'90s, and I've been hired in over 1,000 cases uh, of those 25,000. <clears throat> that doesn't include the cases where judges are approving my uh, retention for the accused who doesn't have the resources to fight back. <clears throat> so if you're involved against CPS in a juvenile dependency case, possibly facing a loss of your parental rights, termination of your parental rights, if you're facing jail, uh, prison, for a sexual assault crime that you did not commit, um, <clears throat> to be mindful, uh, it's not what you know, it's not what you think you know, it's what you can prove, prove that you didn't do what you're accused of doing, uh, right? So <clears throat> advantage state when you're arrested. Uh, and, and, of course, all the advantages go to the child, as they should. <clears throat> so you're, you're basically climbing Mount Everest here. Uh, but uh, the, the point is, uh, the accused in either situation, juvenile and or criminal court, has uh, the entitlement to a defense, which includes not just counsel, but experts. <clears throat> These cases um, uh, will get the best of, of most attorneys. Uh, what I mean by that is, uh, <clears throat> say it's a criminal case, you know, the prosecutor is going to come out and basically, in opening statement, uh, make the statement that children don't lie, children are not mistaken about sexual assault, they must be believed to protect at all costs, a uh, statement that prosecutors and CPS attorneys across America use uh, in, in these types of cases. <clears throat> now, statistically, uh, only about 5 to 10% at the most are false. So you probably ask yourself, how do I get so many cases if only 5 to 10% are false? Well, by false, I mean uh, bad faith, premeditation, malice, or forethought. Somebody is picking up a telephone, uh, for example, in my state of Florida where I'm based, uh, calling 1-800-96-ABUSE, which is our child abuse toll-free hotline in our capital of Tallahassee, uh, and ruining somebody's life. <clears throat> that person knew what he or she was doing beforehand, made that call, to get that person investigated um, and kids taken away uh, and perhaps charged criminally. So those are the exception to the rule. Those are only one out of 20, maybe one out of 10 uh, cases. But the majority of cases are unsubstantiated. And we see about 15 to 20% at most that are substantiated. So there's a lot of cases in that gray area. And of course, Prosecutors and Child Protective Services attorneys will say, well, just because we could not preponderate the allegations and rise to 51% more evidence than not, doesn't mean he didn't do it. That's a good point. What did I just say? It's not what you know. It's not what you think you know. It's what you can prove. So I'm a guy who doesn't like to play the let's wait and see what happens game. I uh, I'm always uh, a firm believer of an aggressive defense against these allegations because if you didn't do what you're accused of doing, 
uh, in basically this credibility shootout between you and a child and perhaps the parent behind the child, then um, you better be able to prove it. And and th- and that's the sixty four thousand dollar question that has to be answered successfully because a lot of lawyers out there, you know, they will be very quick to take your retainer check, um, but slow to deliver on results if they ever deliver results that are favorable to the accused. <clears throat> so um, people must uh, be mindful of the fact that this is a child protective services agency. This is not a family reunification agency. That is absolutely their second goal. Their initial goal and really only goal is to protect the child, which it should be. But there has to be a balance. There has to be a balance for parental rights. And I provide an expert service that helps provide that balance for accused parents that haven't done anything wrong. Um, I have a case now where a father... um, and stepfather, uh, both, is accused of molestation uh, of an older girl, teenager. And he's facing, along with his wife, who's the mother, uh, termination of parental rights of his younger, uh, younger children. And, of course, the mother is charged with failure to protect. So when I tell attorneys, uh, you know, if we're going to win this case, counsel, we have to clear the accused, the primary accused, which is the father slash stepfather, and then the mother is accused by, by proxy because the mother is believing the father slash stepfather didn't do anything wrong, didn't commit any crimes, didn't perpetrate sexual assault. She knew about it. She knew about likely. it. She knew, what she, 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 knew, she knew what her daughter told her. But, you know, um, so we have tests out there. Um, we, we have a, it's called, one of the tests is called the ABLE Assessment for Sexual Interest. The website is ablescreening.com, A-B-E-L screening.com. This is our gold standard child sex test, which assesses one's sexual interest or arousal level in children versus consensual relations with an adult woman. Most men are accused of this versus women, obviously. Uh, We have had a rash of female teachers accused over the years uh, of molesting uh, high school students and the like. But more times than not, in a high-conflict divorce or custody battle, it's the father uh, or stepfather uh, who's the accused, uh, not the mom. So... Yes, in this case, the mother absolutely knew about it. The mother absolutely gravitated to the uh, her husband's innocence. Uh, well, she got nailed for doing that, and they took her kids away, kids who were not involved in the molestation allegation, and they're little kids. And so, you know, it becomes a, a very uh, high mountain to climb to be able to balance the equation here because you're fighting big brother you're fighting uncle sam you're fighting the government uh in these cases and obviously you are the unpopular controversial side of this coin when you walk into a court of law that would be me under oath as the expert witness 
that would be our attorney, that would be the accused. Uh, you know, I, I uh, represented a mother down here in Daytona Beach, Florida, a few years ago uh, as a defense expert, and she didn't have the, the resources to hire me, so the judge ordered the state to pay my fees for my work and my time. And this mother was accused of falsely accusing the father of anal sodomy of their four-year-old son. And, you know, I looked at the children, uh, the child's DVD interview, um, and I didn't see anything there that was consistent with uh, the mother coaching the kid to wrongly accuse the father. And we had multiple experts, multiple PhDs and MDs uh, involved in this case as well. Uh, and they didn't follow proper protocol. So, uh, you know, it, it, when I said it's a lot of work earlier um, in my uh, talk here, uh, you have to look at the uh, CPS policy and training manual. You have to look at the, uh, down here in Florida, it's called the CPT, Child Protection Team Policy and Training Manual. Uh, they have different policy and training manuals. And make sure that, you know, the government dotted their I's and crossed their T's. Um, and I'm pretty, much the, I'm, pr I'm pretty much the only person who can testify to that when I'm on a case. Certainly the accused can't testify to that. Lawyers cannot testify. They file motions and petitions and argue the case in a court of law, so they're not testifying. So my, my role is pretty important. Uh, if yeah, I have a client... Absolutely if I have a client who has been falsely accused. You know, excuse me, Dean. I had to talk and it didn't come out. Um, this might be a good time. We're almost a half an hour in. That is so much great information. And um, I couldn't write fast enough. <laughs> Everything that you're saying. So um, I love it. So do you mind if we take a break for a minute and, and maybe ask questions? Not, not at questions? all. Not at all. Would that be okay? okay. Absolutely. Great. So um, first of all, I was curious, could you tell me a little bit about how you go about the process of figuring out if a child is telling the truth or not? I work. I do darkness to light. I'm an instructor and a facilitator. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can't. We can't do that as experts. Talk about it. So in these, in, okay. well, we we can talk about it, but in these cases, yeah. we're not allowed to determine the credibility of any witness, including the child, or the ultimate issue at bar, which is whether the child was sexually abused or not. Only only a judge or a jury can say that. That's a rule. That's a rule 704 issue. That's an ultimate issue of fact that can only be decided by a fact finder, which is a judge or jury. So I can leave the horse to the water, but I can't make him drink it, obviously. That's up to a judge or jury. Um, and oftentimes uh, it's, grounds, it's grounds for a mistrial in a criminal case if an expert was to say, I believe the child or I believe the accused. Can't, can't do that. Can't go there. Uh, same thing is, you know, you can't say, you know, you know to a degree of, uh, a reasonable degree of medical certainty or psychological certainty that the child has been sexually abused. You can't say that. Uh, only a judge or a jury can say that. Okay. You can just say, this is what I'm finding in this 
Yeah, I can say I can say consistent. I can say consistent with or inconsistent with. I can I can say whether the government approached this from a uh, objective trauma informed approach or they adhere to evidence based best practices or they did not. And then and then we get into a uh, scientific confrontation. That's up for a judge to decide. Okay. So, so when I get involved, as you can imagine, oftentimes my cases are a battle of the experts where I'm going up against a medical doctor or a psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> I bet that's fun. <laughs> um, so we have um, my beautiful co-host, Penelope, on with us and a couple other people. So um, I'm going to go ahead and bring Penelope on. Penelope, here. Are you there? You're on. I am. Dean. I am. Thank you. And thank Hi. you, Dean, um, for for being on tonight. And by the way, I I think we're almost neighbors, Dean, because I'm over here in Sarasota, Florida, a little oh, down okay. from where. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're a little south, a little south of me. Yeah. Hopefully, you guys don't have the red tide as badly as we do right now. I've um, read about it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, yeah. But uh. Definitely something that that is, um, you know, transient, unlike the long-term effects of of childhood uh, abuse and sexual child abuse. And um, sorry to hear. Sorry to hear. Yeah. As I'm listening, you know, here's something that I'm, you know, have a question. I I know, you know, I'm very thankful that you're on and with your expertise um, in some of these areas that I'm not as familiar with. But my question is pretty generic. And I know in in the beginning of your introduction, you were talking about, um, obviously, you know, when children are, um, some of the false accusations, when when a a parent um, manipulates, you know, a child um, in terms of their claims of uh, sexual abuse where no sexual abuse is perpetrated, Um, Mm -hmm. that is initiated by a parent. My question to you is, in your experience, you may or may not have the answer to this, how often does a child, without being prompted by a parent, but how often does a child claim sexual abuse um, perpetrated by a parent or guardian that is unsolicited or uh, in, uh, uh, unsolicited, right? This comes directly from the child, uh, the child's mm-hmm. testimony, the child's claim without any uh, adult um, interference, how often does a child claim a false claim? Uh, I'm not going to use the word false, but I'll use unsubstantiated, mm-hmm. and I'll probably say about 60 to 70% of the time. And, and I understand we're taking out the area of motive and method and means and opportunity because we don't have a – another parent who could be manipulating or brainwashing uh, or coaching the kid. But what we do have is possibly triggers, sexual triggers. Uh, And that can cause the production of what we call schemas. And schemas are enzymes or proteins that can alter or modify one's memory. And that can cause misinformation. So if you look at all the studies by my, my mentor, Dr. Stephen Cece, that's spelled C-E-C-I, 
and his book, Jeopardy in the Courtroom. Jeopardy in the Courtroom was published in 1995. And it became one of the best-selling books ever published by the American Psychological Association, probably, I think, won the most awards ever uh, from the American Psychological Association. But the point was Dr. Cece did all these studies, uh, Mousetrap, Monster in the Box, Sam Stone, and his most famous study, Genital Conditioning, where he proved that young children can uh, be so suggestible that they can make mistakes, not that they're falsely accusing, but they're committing what we call source misattribution errors. They're making mistakes on the source of the so-called abuse or the source of their trauma. Okay, and even ATSA, and I I belong to ATSA, ATSA ATSA.com is the Association for the Treatment and Prevention of Sexual Abuse, is the largest professional organization in America on this topic. They published a task force report in 1996 which even um, basically coaxed all professionals in these cases to be totally objective uh, and to consider multiple hypotheses, alternative hypotheses, not only pertaining to a child's signs, symptoms, behaviors, and disclosures, uh, but also their, their source and origin of their trauma, that it may be something else besides. Okay, I, get, I get cases where, you know, three-year-olds are over-sexualized and touching themselves, and you get a very, um, you know, you get a very hysterical mom um, who's a protective mom, make no mistake. She's not trying to get anybody in trouble here maliciously. But, you know, she'll start taping the child or she'll start asking leading or suggestive questions to the, to the child, and all of a sudden um, she could be pouring gasoline on a fire and getting getting answers from the child that are just not true. Okay, kids don't have the same brain formation as we do as adults. And it's the psychological age of reason is seven to eight, where that's the age where they absolutely should know right from wrong, truth from lie, good touch and bad touch and secret touch. Not that they can't be before that age, uh, but I just had a case where, um, you know, the child said, the accused uh, put his head in his diaper, um, and he's you know he's he's double digits age now. So uh, he just you know there's no way he could cognitively recall that at that tender age of probably two two and a half, three and a half is about as young young as you could be to go back and be able to to recall uh, an event like that. So yeah, this this is a scientific minefield, if you will, and certainly a legal minefield because the lawyers, uh, most lawyers, uh, just have no knowledge of the science here. And, you know, they're taking big-time cases with a lot hanging in the balance, a parent's rights to these kids, um, criminal charges where, like I said, felony conviction, prison, and sex offender registration are clearly, clearly waiting for that person down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they plea bargain or they go to trial and lose and get a get a jury conviction, so yeah, they are very complex. They're very difficult. Um, and Dr. CC, uh, his work was probably the most groundbreaking work in this field of child and human development some 30 years ago. Is when he started rapidly publishing a lot of uh, articles on this. He is the uh, or at least he was. I haven't communicated with him in quite a while. 
He was the uh, Helen Carr Professor professor of Child Development uh, in Ithaca, New York, at, uh, uh, at, at Cornell University. So, um, you know, and, and then my other colleague, uh, Dr. Phil Esplin, uh, E-S-P-L-I-N. Dr. Esplin was the original uh, co-author of the what's called the NICHD model. The NICHD model is our evidence-based, uh, evidence-based best practices model for interviewing children forensically. And so you have to, when you interview a child, you have to ask open-ended, non-leading questions. Not a question like, did daddy touch your pee-pee? That's direct. It's asking for a yes-no response. It's leading. It's suggestive. Right. So you have, to ta- you, you have to tap into the child's unconscious, implicit memory, the same memory that when the child gets up in the morning, the child uh, is going to the bathroom, taking a shower, uh, combing his or her hair, putting their jeans or dress on. They don't have to think about it. Same thing here. Uh, and the law actually states that in order for a child to be credible, the allegation or outcry or disclosure has to be made spontaneously, contemporaneously, of the child's own free volition, which is why we do discourage taping or asking a child questions. Um, you know, and it, I mean, it's not wrong to ask a couple of questions. You see a child that's act, acting sexually. Uh, is having issues like bedwetting and nightmares and flashbacks, curling up in a fetal position, uh, thumb-sucking and baby talk, you know, a bunch of regressive behaviors. Certainly you can ask a few questions, but you need to leave it to the professionals. You need to leave it to the certified interviewers, uh, you know. And so this NICHD model, which was first published in 2000 by my, my colleague, Dr. Esplin, um, and a few other PhDs, uh, is not used very much uh, in America, in only about seven jurisdictions. And, and, and the reason is it's harder to obtain an outcry. Uh, you know, I'm not going lie to lie to you guys. Uh, it is more difficult to obtain an outcry or disclosure from a child when you ask a child the following questions. Uh, can you tell me what happened? And then the child makes a, makes a statement, uh, tell me about that. Tell me more about that. Okay, so you're not putting any words or thoughts or ideas into the child's mind. You're, you're letting the child tell his or her story spontaneously. And that's what the mm-hmm. law requires. And uh, in order for the uh, outcry to be reliable and trustworthy, those are the other two factors that uh, succeed uh, spontaneity. Uh, like I said, the child's uh, outcry has to be made spontaneously uh, in order to get to reliability and trustworthiness. In, in Florida, we have what's called the town, Townsend factors, T-O-W-N-S-E-N-D, Townsend factors. That's the law governing a child's statements here, here in my state of Florida. And uh, we actually have that, that case law is from 1994, State of Florida versus Townsend. And the Supreme Court of Florida outlined and articulated the factors that are determinable for the reliability uh, of a child's statement, uh, what, what they call extrajudicial statement or rest, rest just stay evidence, hearsay statements out of court made by children in cases down here. So uh, it, it's a very specialized area of law. It's a very specialized area of science. And... Good luck in 
you know, whether you still have the yellow pages or you're just using Google and getting the right attorney to champion a case like this. Now, down in Sarasota, um, I went up against a, a very competent uh, female attorney. Her name is uh, Colleen Norman, and mm-hmm. uh, I would recommend her to any mom um, who has an issue with uh, her own um, abuse uh, or, or her child's abuse down in the Sarasota, um, uh, Manatee, Bradenton area. Her name, her name again, Colleen Norman. Thank so, you. you know, she is a specialist in these types of cases. It's difficult to find a specialist attorney in these types of cases. Well, I'm making note of her name. Um, yeah, I appreciate you answering my question. It's very, um, it's it's a very difficult subject, obviously, especially for an adult survivor of child abuse to be, you know, thinking about children going through this process. Um, and even though it, 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 it is, yeah, and, and, and of, the, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 go on. Well, the, the problem is you can put emotions before logic uh, because obviously no subject will drive more emotions uh, in a mom uh, or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa or aunt or uncle than the child saying, daddy touched my pee-pee or uh, Joe next door who we know, our next door neighbor touched touch my pee-pee. Um, you know, you, you're going to go into uh, you know, hysterical nature on steroids. So most most child molestation occurs uh, and is perpetrated by someone who the, the kid knows. So um, there's a good video online uh, with uh, Henry Winkler, Fonzie, and Marianne Hartley and John Ritter titled uh, Strong Kids, Safe Kids on YouTube. The problem is it, it uh, reports on stranger danger child molestation. That's really more a myth than reality. Because you, most molestation, most sexual assault is perpetrated by someone who the child does know. That's correct. So, uh, but but it is a good uh, primer for kids to tell. And and look, I encourage all kids to tell. I'm not saying that uh, no kid should keep this a secret. Um, you know, if you have been abused, absolutely, you want to tell. You want to tell your teacher. You want to tell your babysitter. Uh, mandated reporters, you want to tell your mom uh, and get this properly investigated and handled. But there's a term in psychology called confirmation bias or confirmatory bias where professionals even investigating interviewing these cases can have a preconceived notion that they believe the abuse already happened. And like I said earlier, you can't give that opinion. I can't give that opinion. Uh, unless a judge greenlights me to do so. And that's only happened once in my career. Once in my career in a, in a criminal case from Alabama mm-hmm. did, a, did a judge allow me to, to, to give an opinion whether I thought the uh, mm-hmm. girls were, were sexually assaulted or not in that case. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I, I commend you for the work that you do. It's not easy. Um, by any means, and, and uh, so thank you. Thank you for everything that you do. To find thank someone you. with integrity, yeah, to fight for our children um, is very, it's very hard to find someone with integrity. And, and uh, so um, 
we also really appreciate you being, you know, a part of NASCA and coming on um, for these shows. And, and um, they're, they're very helpful and very informative um, some, because, as you said, sometimes it just is very hard to know where to start and where to go. So thank you. Yeah, I was on, I was on as I was telling Kim, I was on about a decade ago uh, for Ruby Dillon. Uh, in a case out of Orange County, California. And um, ironically, I was hired by her ex, the father in that case, and he was accused of molesting uh, their daughter. And that case just spiraled out of control uh, very quickly. And when I was hired, it was I was scratching my head because the attorneys I was working with for the father had cherry-picked just a couple of hundred pages of records of discovery to send to me. And usually when I get cases, there's, you know, they are a tome. They are just, you know, thousands of pages. It's, it's a lot of stuff to go through. At any rate, um, the father, you know, was never arrested, never prosecuted for molesting the daughter. And, and Ruby got a hold of me on Facebook about six months after my retention and asked me if I was the guy that her ex hired, and I said, yes. Well, how much of the case did you see, Dean? I said, well, only a couple hundred pages. And she said, oh, no, I've got like 4,000 pages. I said, I'll tell you what, send me what you have, and I won't charge you a dime. And she did. And uh, I read the uh, rape report, which was not pretty. And I'm scratching my head why... Uh, this guy, this guy wasn't arrested and charged. Uh, in California, usually it's a it's a grand jury indictment. Uh, if you, if you think Michael Jackson back to 2005, 2003 when he was indicted, 2005 when he went to trial. So I wound up switching sides from dad to mom. Mid, wow. Midstream, midstream. I had never done that, and and have not done that again since that case from. A decade ago and uh, I gave I gave declarations declarations are a big thing in family court in Superior Court in California I gave two declarations for mom for Ruby uh, in that case supporting her position in the case uh, because uh, when Ruby uh, rather when her daughter was taken from her uh, she basically couldn't couldn't see her again she was basically extricated from her life and uh, so uh, the case garnered a lot of media attention. Uh, there's really not a lot a litigant can do, a parent can do. When you, when you lose your case in a court of law, you have very little left by way of remedy. Uh, so I do encourage folks to, you know, use your voice, use your, your hands and your fingers uh, on the keyboard and utilize your First Amendment right uh, to free speech and, and, and freedom of the press <clears throat> uh, because the media can help you. But you do have to watch the media because it can be the fox guarding the hen house. So you've got to be careful on that one as well. Uh, trust is very difficult to, um, to grasp once you've been through these cases. Uh, you don't know who to trust because it seems like everybody uh, is against you. So, exactly. uh, you know, the, the child gets a lot of support in the way of professionals, not just out of court, but in court. The court usually uh, appoints 
a uh, guardian ad litem, an attorney representing the child in California. That's called minor's counsel in New York. That's called law guardian. Uh, means the same thing. And so the child has um, counsel. The uh, child usually has a child advocate. And there's a child forensic interviewer. And then, of course, there's your child protective services intake worker uh, for CPS, at least one. Um, if the case drags on for a year, a year and a half, because the judge ordered the child uh, into foster care and the parents who uh, go through what's called a case plan, hoops that they have to jump through to substantially comply with to get those kids back home, the case could um, could see multiple caseworkers from CPS involved handling the case, usually does. So you can just imagine when you get to a trial and – I'm a trial guy, so most of my cases, uh, it's a Mike Tyson war. There's going to be a winner and a loser. There's no, you know, smoking the peace pipe at the 50-yard line. That just doesn't happen in my cases. So, Are you competitive a little? I'm sorry? No, I mean, it's a good time. Are you competitive just a little bit? You're like I'm going to win I I guess that's the Boston that's the Boston in me that's that's where I was born and raised. So. Uh, well, uh, I took you that, know what? Took that, um, took that to Florida and never lost it. <laughs> I can hear a little accent, a little bit of the accent in there. Yeah, I've been well, down, I've been down here over, over forty here. years. I'm sorry. Have you really? <laughs> we have a couple yeah. other people on the panel as well, so. I was going to see if we could get to him. Thank you, Penelope. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So, this, yeah, she's, she's always got the best questions. Um, so, Victoria, I, I'm, I'm not sure if she wants to say anything or not, but I thought I'd yeah. check, Victoria. <clears throat> yeah, I would. Um, so, Dean, I was looking at your um, webpage on uh, uh, Facebook, and uh, I'm, just, I'm not going to read the whole post, but it says, um, you testified uh, last week at expert witness in a criminal case, and the judge said to me, I don't believe in parental alienation. It's science. Now, I was wondering if you could comment on that post and what the situation was. Yeah, so I said back to the judge, I agree with him in part, because it's not published in the DSM-5-TR or the ICD-11, which are our psychiatric and medical Bibles. Uh, so obviously that immediately puts it in controversy. Immediately, a judge could uh, have a belief that it's not real science. It's just a theory. But an article came out, as I said in that post, also uh, last year in Developmental Psychology that contained a literature review of 213 published peer-reviewed scientific articles on the issue of parental alienation by the uh, experts such as Jennifer Harmon, Richard Warshak, William Bernay, Amy Baker, uh, you go to Canada, uh, Edward Crook out of British Columbia. So, you know, it is recognized by the American Academy of Pediatrics. It is recognized by the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And uh, we talked about Daubert and Mohan a little earlier in this conversation. That is the science, uh, the law rather, that the judge has to uh, draw a line to the science uh, and connect those dots to see if it's actual science or not. 
So I told the judge, you know, Your Honor, I agree with you in part uh, because it's not published in those medical psychiatric Bibles, mm -hmm. uh, but that it is recognized by, you know, the elite professional organizations. And this article, like I said, just this literature review just came out in developmental psychology last year, 2022. Oh, the judge said, the judge said, you know what, uh, Mr. Tong, I'm satisfied. Uh, you do meet the criteria as an expert, and you can. You can move on, sir, and answer the questions. Uh, answer the questions that are uh, fashioned to you by counsel. Yeah, because I know the term, uh, um, you know, parent alienation has been, you know, just all over the place, and uh, that, yeah, that was very interesting to me. And especially now that you said it only a year ago, that it really even an article came out in, in something that you know pretty much makes it valid, but that a lot of people use it, and I don't know if. The attorneys would be able to come to, you know, a conclusion there, there if you are, did where they could hold there, it there up. Are, yeah. There, yeah, there, there are clearly two schools of thought, two, two schools of thought on this area of uh, emotional, mental, psychological child abuse known as parental alienation, no doubt about it. And um, so when I get involved and, and I'm going to be giving expert testimony on parental alienation, I can pretty much tell uh, I'm going to see a motion in limine. Motion in limine, L-I-M-I-N-E, which is a motion to limit or exclude my evidence, my testimony, based on whatever argument the opposing lawyer is making in the pleading. Junk science hasn't been published in the DSM, ICD, whatever. That's going to trigger a Daubert hearing, which is a science and controversy hearing where the judge becomes the gatekeeper of the science. So the judge determines, like I said earlier, what is bona fide, genuine science or what is junk science. If the judge, you know, just has a steadfast belief it's junk science, then I'm pretty much whitewashed for that testimony. And if that's the only opinion that I'm going to have and make in the case, then I'm pretty much useless for the uh, party who retained my services. Yeah. Yeah, I just... I've heard so many people use it, and I, I didn't even realize that it it hadn't been like a wrong time or that it's just common, you know, common term. Um, yeah, I appreciate answering the question, and I'm sure there's more people with questions because it's a really good subject, and I just want to thank you for being on too. And it's very helpful. Yeah, it's, my, it's my it's my pleasure. It's uh, it, it's like I said, it's a minefield. Um, uh, you don't make any friends in these cases. Uh, usually when I come into a case, I have a target on my head, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and uh, yeah. uh, you kind of, you kind of, ex you kind of expect that. Uh, uh -huh. I guess it's, I guess it's like, uh, it's not uh, a popularity you know, kind. So. No, no. It's kind of <laughs> like you're running, running back on a football team. You know, you're going to get hit. Yeah. You know you're going to get hit, yep. and and you know you might you know you might yeah, suffer a concussion. You know you might right. suffer a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. No. Gosh. Well, I'm Thank glad you're doing what you're saying. It's very very important. Uh huh. Yeah, we do. So, we have. Yeah. Um, thank you. We have like three other people on the line here. So so. Let's see if we can get, because we only are down to 33 minutes. The time okay. goes so fast. 
and um, let's see if we can get to a couple of other people. Thanks, Victoria. Now we have um, Laquisha. And Laquisha, I'm bringing you on the air with Dean. If you have something you wanted to say, did I say your name right? Maybe she doesn't have anything to say. Okay, so I'm going to put you back on hold here, and we'll go to the next person down here. Hi, you're on the air. Phone number 1116, the last four digits. Did you have anything that you wanted to say? Oh, Albert. Okay, just listening. Well, I guess we didn't have a whole lot of other questions. <laughs> Thanks, Melody. Um, so I, I'm kind of curious because now, are you able to go anywhere to do these forensic interviews and and testify? Or I mean, because I just, I guess I just thought that most attorneys and and things, although I know you're a specialty, but um, are kind of you know, limited to whatever, I guess, that they are licensed in, right? Okay, well, I'm, I'm not an attorney, so I'm not a lawyer. And so you're not I'm a lawyer. Not, okay. <laughs> right. Uh, and I, I, don't, I don't conduct the child forensic interviews. So, so when you conduct child forensic interviews, you have, you have to work for the government, okay? You have to work for the government because you will be doing your job at the, what's called the Child Advocacy Center, uh, or unless you're a research academic, like a PhD, doing conducting a research study, what's called an informed consent research study that involves interviewing children as part of that study, and the parents of those children, of course, have to sign, sign the consent form, that would be the only way you could interview children in a non-governmental child forensic interview. But all child forensic interviews are conducted by governmental employees. I work for the defense. I'm not a government a state expert. So what I do is I critique those interviews. I've looked at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of child forensic interviews across this, um, well, across North America, because I've had cases from Canada as well, uh, for, for decades. And, and so yeah, I get a lot of cases. And some cases have four, five, six, eight children. And those children may have been forensically interviewed two or three times. So you can imagine some cases may have 20 or 25 DVDs I have to look at. Um, yeah, I have another question. So I'll make sure that you get in before the, before the time runs out. Okay. Um, could you um, let us know about um, the na how to get a hold of you and then um, your website, um, of course, um, what, sure. what it's called and what's on it and things like that. Sure. Yeah, so my, I have two websites, uh, abuse-excuse.com. Abuse-excuse.com has been on the Internet since 1997. That is my primary website. And, of course, I get criticized a lot by the title of that website that I'm trying to find an excuse for parents to beat the rap, if you will. And that's just not the case because if you think back to the Menendez brothers, uh, in California who shot their parents uh, in cold blood and killed them uh, back in the 90s, they believed uh, they were molested by their parents. So there's an abuse excuse where 
the perpetrators of homicide were trying to use their own abuse from their childhood to get a, a lower sentencing uh, on, on their homicides. So that's where that comes from. But uh, I also have a second website, which is an academic website at academia.edu. I don't know if you all can access that, um, not being, um, you know, not being members of that of that website. But it's uh, if you put my name in the search box at academia.edu, uh, and you're able to scroll around there, you'll you'll find my page over there. But my primary site is uh, abuse-excuse.com. I've written three books. I'm also a published author. Uh, my books were published in 1992, 1997, and 2002. The 2002 book, Elusive Innocence, Survival Guide for the Falsely Accused, um, it, you know, still sells a lot of books today. Over 20 mm -hmm. years later at Amazon, at Amazon, you'll see the book. I think it has like 69 reviews over there or something. But mm -hmm. uh, that, that book is pretty much a how-to guide for attorneys and parents who are involved in these cases uh, who don't have much money but but do have 10 or 15 bucks to uh, to read how to uh, na na navigate navigate a high conflict case like this um, to be able to declare their names assuming they're innocent mm -hmm. i went to the um, com website in uh and i did scroll down the page a little bit and it says we do not excuse and uh, then, so you you gave you know the unspeakable acts of prey upon our children, which you know really I was really happy about. I was wondering who the guy was who put a put a round circle with an X in. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who that guy was. I know I I know I had to get permission. I had to get permission to use this photo over 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I was gonna say I would want to be want to be that guy. Uh, Even though when you see like these people are models or whatever, you know, you go, mm, are they? <laughs> you know, and I, I started, I started helping moms uh, on the other side of this divisive coin back in '04. Uh, yeah. I appeared on Doctor, I appeared on Doctor Phil with Bridget, Bridget Marks, uh, M A R K S, and she was a, a lady out of New York who had twin daughters, and she was uh, like, like my client in Daytona Beach, I alluded to earlier. Uh, she was accused of coaching her daughters to falsely accuse their father of sexual assault, and the judge took custody away from mom just based on the allegations that surfaced through Child Protective Services uh, through yeah. the kids. So I, I, uh, I worked that case, and uh, we had to go to the appellate court to, uh, to try to get relief, and we won. We won on appeal. So Bridget got her kids back in 2005, and she never looked back in the rearview mirror again. Those kids are adults now. Mm -hmm. And then I noticed, too, on the website, um, I just want to let people know that um, um, you have a whole bunch of, it says, uh, false abuse allegations as well as false allegations of child sexual assault. And you've got click here, click here, click here, click here. I don't know how many there are, but different court cases and different. Um, yeah, yeah, there are there are legal there. legal yeah. reviews. Yeah, there are legal reviews, scientific reviews, uh, mm -hmm. statutes. Uh, there's a lot of stuff over there. I mean, it's it's really overwhelming. There's so much information yeah. on over there. And, yeah, and, if people and, are really and let, let, there's a lot of reading that you know, even just without you know, clicking, there's a lot of information right there. 
So I appreciate that. Yeah. It's good to see yeah, websites that have more than just, you know, uh, name, contact, and a few pictures. You know? So, <laughs> and, you yeah, know, one, 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 one tidbit of advice I will give uh, people out there, you know, whether your child has been sexually abused or you're a parent who's been falsely accused of the same, be very mindful of vetting any prospective attorney you would retain before you do so. So, for example, there's a man by the name of Richard Ducote, D-U-C-O-T-E. D-U-C-O-T-E. And he's got to be in his late 70s or 80 now. Um, I believe he's back in Louisiana. I know he had, a, he had an uproot from Louisiana when Hurricane Katrina hit. He relocated and passed the bar in Pennsylvania because I had a case against him in 2011 in Pennsylvania. And I just got a call from, a, from another gentleman just a couple of weeks ago who's litigating against Mr. Ducote in Louisiana. So I think he's back in Louisiana. But the point is he's a really fine attorney for moms whose kids have been sexually abused. I mean, this is all he does. And he's been doing this for probably about 50 years. Oh, Another thing I wanted to ask you to share on the other show I think you talked about is where where a mother um, actually did something to the kid to say that the father did it. If I'm not mistaken, that was you that was talking about that, to try to make the father look guilty. I could be talking to a different person. Where I don't know. The mother that, that, on the child or something and... Well, anyway, the, case I, I had from, the, the case I had from Florida, the mother the mother was accused of coaching her four-year-old son to say the dad um, anally sodomized him, uh, and so the government the government the government government believed she was falsely accusing him, which is unusual because usually CPS comes in in actual uh, cases where they believe the kid was molested. Right. Uh, not not the you know not the other way uh, where they think the father was falsely accused. So mm-hmm. coaching, co- co- I wrote an article. I wrote an article on coaching. So if you guys go to divorcemag.com or divorcemagazine.com, just put my name in the search box. You'll see an article that I wrote on a backlash against moms who've been falsely accused of coaching. Coaching is synonymous with emotional psychological child abuse yeah and so well, this CB, person CBS, was on CBS the other day huh? yeah, this person was on the other day and they were talking about um the mother to get you know to get custody whatever um had taken the girl to the bathroom and you know rubbed her genitals and stuff and then and then brought her to the doctor and had coached the kids to say that you know my dad this to me and um you know they arrested the dad whatever and it, it finally you know came out in the long run that the mother had done that to, you know, make dad look bad. And uh, we were discussing at um, one point, um, okay, so the father got basically, you know, you didn't do it, but but the mother, nothing happened to her. And as far as I'm concerned, that right there is sexual abuse. If you're hurting a kid, nothing was done to the mother. The mother should have been arrested for, for rubbing the child's genital. Yeah, really and, hard enough and, to like leave red marks and then accusing that, dad. I just don't understand yeah, how that, that could be called sexual abuse. You know that 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 right there. If that came out in 
If that came out in CPS records and court records and court testimony, the mother should have been, should have been arrested for inappropriate touching, lewd and lascivious molestation of this child. Absolutely. Right. But down right. here, down here in my down here in my state of Florida, that is a life felony. Florida statute 800.04, you can go to prison for life without parole. On the so other you think side, it depends on the judge and depends on the state as well with something that wasn't prosecuted like that, and it can still be prosecuted. Yeah, the- absolutely. Most states, most states, false accusations are considered um, no big deal. Um, we don't like to publish that because it gives women and children a chilling effect from reporting abuse in the future. So we're not going to prosecute you if you incite a witch hunt. Um, you know, don't do that again, but at worst, we're going to give you a slap on the wrist. Well, not so in Florida. Down here, it's a felony. You can go to prison for up to five years. Good. I mean, that's good to hear. I appreciate that. You're cracking down on well, people, let's say. Well, but if you ask the police... How many cases do you arrest and prosecute of false accusations or child abuse? They will tell you very, very, very few. And the reason yeah, is they don't, want, they, 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 don't, they don't want to stifle kids. They want kids to be able to talk about this, and they should be able to talk about this. They get good touch, bad touch programs in school. They get educational programs, and, and, and obviously – um, daddy and mommy have to go over the birds and the bees when the kids get to be uh, almost puberty age. You know, all that stuff has to be broached with the child. We're not saying don't do that. Go ahead and do all that. Just be very careful what you're saying to your kid because kids don't have the same memory, memory uh, brain formation as we have as adults, and they're very suggestible. They're very impressionable. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know what? We are down to 19 minutes. So what else in these last few minutes on air would you like to, to share with us? Well, I guess we could, were... I mean, we could talk about uh, coercive control. It's kind of the new, huh? the new, thing, new kid on the block, if you will. Wow, oh, tell us about that. So, so coercive control is really extreme psychological abuse, and obviously we see this in actual, actual cases of domestic violence where women are controlled by men uh, domestically uh, and physically. Uh, it could be false imprisonment held against their own, not allowed to leave, not allowed to use their cell phone to call 911. Uh, not allowed to go get their car to get away, not allowed to go to the battered women's shelter. Uh, so that's coercive control. Now, we also see this on the flip side, where in cases of severe parental alienation, where, say, for example, I'll just give a hypothetical, that a mom is not wanting dad to see the kid for whatever reason. Dad has a new girlfriend. Dad's not paying his child support. Uh, she basically uh, enmeshes to the kid, so the child loses emotional attachment to the dad, and all the attachment goes to the mom. And now 
uh, we're, we're seeing that the child, uh, after a while, will not want to communicate or see the father who becomes the targeted parent. And so this is another form of co- uh, coercive control, just the reverse flip side. And we're starting to see states adopt statutes consistent with this, what they call coercive control. Uh, I had a case about a year ago from the state of Hawaii where the judge um, basically had a hearing on this coercive control uh, issue. And uh, it can be a deciding uh, psychological issue in determining parenting time in custody. So again, but, but usually in coercive control, if an attorney is unsuccessful in uh, litigating his position or her position in court, you're going to need expert testimony. The attorney will the attorney will need expert testimony for the case. So you come in, yeah, yeah. Well, it and, was, you know, in, in some cases, uh, you know, it's common sense. The the uh, the parent may want to hire a PhD, a psychologist, or or an MD, a psychiatrist, um, who is more credentialed than than me. And and the the law does not require that you hold a PhD or MD to be an expert. There are some experts out there in America who only have bachelor's degrees. So long as you can relate to the court by education and experience. Um, and knowledge that you possess the credentials and qualifications to be an expert, uh, regardless of how degreed you are, uh, you will be uh, cloaked as an expert by the court uh, or not. So the one thing courts do not like is ideology. They detest ideology or theories that are unpublished and not born in science, theories that have not been replicated, that have not been tested, they've not been peer-reviewed, they've not attained clinical or statistical significance, they do not have, uh, they have not attained what we call inter-rater reliability. So very important that if you are testifying as an expert to any psychological theory, whether it's a course of control, parental alienation, um, child sex abuse accommodation syndrome, the CSAAS, you'll find a Wikipedia page on that, the child sexual abuse accommodation syndrome. Whatever theory the expert is testifying to, uh, the expert better know that theory inside and out and be able to articulate the knowledge to the court Otherwise, the judge will probably shoot you down and disqualify you. And if you're disqualified, you cannot give an opinion. And therefore, you cannot help the client who paid you, who retained you. It's all really fascinating yeah. to me. So thank you so much for tonight yeah. because I, I, my mom worked as a paralegal when I was young. And, um, and I think she just knew all the ins and outs, but she was also the person that enabled my abuser, my stepdad, who not only physically abused me, but also sexually abused me. And basically, I was told it happened. And um, 
she passed away about 20 years ago now. But um, I I kind of wondered, you know, because you do, I guess, <laughs> if I would have ever been taken out of the home, you know, what that would have looked like, who would have advocated. Because you hear so many stories. You really do. And there's a lot of bad things that happen, especially when the kids get taken away a lot of times. And um, and so, you know, I don't know if it was worse or what, you know, or better that my mom was able to manipulate and make everybody think that we were a perfect family. Um, and behind the scenes, my, my dad was actually a heroin addict and he was molesting me and it was just crazy. <laughs> when I think, when I look back, I'm like, I, I survived that. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry to hear. But, I'm sorry uh, to hear. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's crazy when you think about it. And I'm like, what would have happened if I would have gone, you know, if I would have been rescued? Because I think at the time I wanted to be. And that's why I told my mom what had happened, you know, is because I wanted somebody to help me. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so passionate, I know that Darkness to Light can come a long way, but it, it's got all of those elements that you were talking about as far as, you know, the the evidence-based and, you know, all of the, the interviews and everything that they do and just make sure that it's really um, trauma-informed. Yeah, it, it, it's and a lot of work really because... That. Yeah, you're welcome. It's it's a lot of work. I mean, when I'm helping an attorney, the attorney obviously knows the law, knows the rules of court, the rules of procedure, the rules of evidence, uh, knows the facts of the case or alleged facts of the case. Then my job is to review and critique all the reports from the professionals, from Child Protective Services to the detectives, to the child forensic interviewers, to the therapists, uh, guardians ad litem, attorneys for the child. Uh, there may be a guardian ad litem attorney and a guardian ad litem who's just a layperson, advocate helping the child. So it's a lot of work, and then you have to go over the policies and procedure manuals of Child Protective Services and the police and the uh, Child Advocacy Center where they're doing the forensic interviews with a fine-tooth comb to make sure the government did their job. Because I can tell you when you walk into court, it's, if this is a tennis match, advantage government. Every time, advantage government. So the accused, if you have been wrongly accused, or even perhaps uh, if you've been abused, uh, actually abused, the government always has a leg up because, you know, that's an agency that is uh, court appointed. It's an agency that gets involved on their own uh, and obviously uh, has total immunity. Here in, here in America, the Child Protective Services Agency uh, enjoys what we call 11th Amendment sovereign immunity. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's just a lot of uh, vetting, a, a lot of fact-checking, a lot of going back and forth uh, to see that they did everything that they were supposed to do. And so you can imagine when you come into court and you're on the opposite side of the government, uh, you're immediately reviled and uh, put under a microscope. Well, we definitely appreciate you and definitely appreciate you coming on this evening. 
So I would like you um, also to come in for um, for a um, a kind of a push for parents. Um, I you know work a lot with uh, Better Women through the Better Women Shelter, and what you're talking about um, downgrading the as you know because the women it was women downgrading the fathers all the time to the kids um, just irked me so bad. Um, I had two children that um, I was not with their fathers and their fathers were in their life. But in the back of my mind, I never, ever wanted to do that. You know, my grandma always put down my mom. I was raised by my grandparents. Always put down my mom, and I always felt like, you know, I'm half of my mom. And I must be all those things that, you know, or I compare myself. Oh, well, I kind of do some of that, you know, or whatever. And, and it can really damage a child. Um, I just, you know, both of their dads were not good people. And, they, you know, if they would have asked, I would have just said, it's just not safe to be around them. Um, but but some of these mothers were just like saying everything and, and calling them names and all this and that, whether they were visitation or not. And it just really, really bothered me. So it's a message to well, parents. You're not helping the kids any by putting down the dad. They will figure out for themselves person the other parent is. No, I'm not saying like there's do. abuse or anything to not talk about it. But not like, you know, oh, he's an effing jerk and this and that and that, that all the time. Um, I, so I just wanted to throw that out there um, because it can really yeah. get into Chuck. You know, I get, I get Chuck, I get hotly, hotly contested Chuck Hussey cases with or without abuse allegations. Uh, and uh, I always tell parents, you know, you always put the needs of the child or children ahead of your own. That's right. You you neither denigrate nor vilify the opposing parent, and you actually, by law, are required to foster and nurture the relationship of the child or children with the opposing parent. Mm-hmm. And and look, in all courts, in all courts, it's about the child's best interest. It's not about mom's right. best interest. It's not about dad's best interest. Mm-hmm. So when when a judge is ruling and doing an analysis an analysis of the child best interest factors. So, for example, in my state of Florida, there were 20 factors that the court has to go over and consider before issuing an order on custody or what we mm-hmm. call down here time sharing. Um, it's only about the child. The judge has an obligation and allegiance to the child and only the child. It's when the judge abuses his or her discretion right. in, in ruling on the child is when that judge can be appealed to a higher court. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, but unfortunately, it, there's no judges or, or people that are educating these parents about how harmful it is to the kids when you're doing that. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, you, and I said to many parents, you know, um, both sides, um, is, is that in the best interest of the child, you know, um, and, and, you know, I always say it takes a village to raise a child because my kids were raised in foster care in um, in, in uh, um, different um, situations, respite care and things like that. And, you know, I never put down them. I always was so grateful that they helped. Now, I know not every kid goes into a good situation yeah, in foster have care. I've placed my children in permanent foster care, and that was my decision because I was in a psych ward and they were bouncing around the system. Uh, that was my decision, but there are there are good places for kids to go, and you know, um, and they did. They want to reunify us, and I just said, 
no, I just, you know, this is just not working. I start doing really well, I get my kids back, and I end up back in the psych ward. Um, I got a lot of work to do, you know, kind of. But I do want to comment on the, the thing. Call it, I used to call yeah, myself crazy all the time. Until somebody said, <laughs> you're not crazy. What was done to you was crazy. You reacted normally right, to exactly. crazy situations. We need to, so I want to end that. We need that. to understand thanks, that. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Victoria. I just wanted Penelope maybe to have a turn because we're down to just a few more minutes. So I didn't know if Penelope had anything else that she wanted to say real quick. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is this the night to have stuff in people's throats? I don't know, but I caught up, yeah. caught up with me. Um, no, I just want to really, I mean, say thank you. I'm so, you know, appreciative always, you know, to be um, able to, you know, fit in these shows. And I learned so much, and I really just wish to thank you, you know, Kim and Victoria, um, and also um, Dean, just, you know, so the knowledge that you shared and just the ability to know that, that you're out there um, as a resource um, for NASCA is uh, really just so appreciative. So thank you very much. I learned a lot, a lot of notes, and um, and uh, hopefully we'll hear you again in the future. So thank you very much. I don't have any more questions. I just really want to express my gratitude. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Thank I, you. I reiterate that, too. Everything Penelope said, we appreciate you being on. And, um, you know, and of course, you're a part of the NASCAR family. We would love to have you call in anytime if there's ever a, a topic that interests you and um, you think you can have a good input yeah, on Yeah, I, 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 just, I, just, I just want to acknowledge April coming up here, of course, is National Child Abuse Awareness and Prevention Month, the month of the child. So. Um, everybody think about that, uh, the 30 days in April, that uh, uh, that's the month that we honor children. Uh, if I could bring up this really quickly, um, me and another um, woman is I'm going to try to get out a NASCA newsletter, which we haven't done in a while, and I just wanted to ask people, and, and Dean as well, um, we're looking for, you know, any kind of articles or information or anything that we could put in there because it hasn't been done for quite a while. Bill just can't get it done, the founder. And uh, so Indiana Soto and myself are going to be taking that on. And uh, I just want to let people know, you know, they're listening as well. Um, you can contact us on the Facebook group or you can contact me as well. I'm on NASCA. My phone number's on there. I'm the Minnesota ambassador. And I just, you know, Thank think you, we Victoria, really great. need to get that. We really need to get that newsletter out in April because it is Child Abuse Awareness Prevention Month. Yeah. It's also Sexual Assault Awareness Month, that. which a lot of people say, well, that just includes kids too, and it's like, yeah, it does, but then you miss out on all the stuff, other stuff that you know, um, that involves yeah. children and abuse. Yeah, well, so I want to throw that in. So many issues. Well, that's that's exciting, Victoria. Doing that and letting us know. So again, um, Dean, just tell us how to get a hold of you. Tell us like your um, your website and your book again is Elusive Innocence. That's correct. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. And, yeah. and that's available yeah. on Amazon or and Amazon, Amazon. My website. Folks may want to choose Amazon. Uh, pretty trustworthy. Uh, place obviously since COVID, <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, yeah. My Facebook. website, my 
the web, the website used. Uh, yes, I am on Facebook. Um, I do have some room to accept friends, so folks can friend me. I, I do offer a pro bono service over there and have for years uh, to uh, be able to guide people in their cases without obviously giving opinions because uh, I'm not seeing documents. I'm going by hearsay. Uh, but a lot of people do get a hold of me, and I do I do answer their questions. Uh, so you may you may find me accessible if you uh, query me. Uh, whereas you may have a hard time getting a hold of an attorney or a psychologist or psychiatrist. Well, thank you so much for that information. And um, I I believe that I followed you. I didn't see a friend request, but I'll, I'll connect with you. I, I appreciate sure. you, and, and thank you yeah. again for being on all that you contributed. Thank you for having, thank you for having me. Very appreciate informative. It. Uh, and, um, you know, as we like to say, that there is enough eyes and ears out there in the world to be protecting and protecting every child that's out there. And so yes. we need to be the voice for the children, and we need to be the adults and start acting like adults and stop putting these responsibilities onto the kids so we can make a difference. So if you see something, please say something. Have a good evening, everybody. Good night. Good night. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.